You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. Hi, Pete. Welcome to the show. It's such a pleasure to see you. I'm thrilled to be here with you, Shruti. This is a great opportunity. So I want to start with Hayek because I have learned so much of my Hayek from you. I took the Austrian sequence with you. You were my dissertation advisor. So when I have a Hayek question, it just feels about right to come to you. And recently, Daron Asimoglu, you know, said on Twitter that the insights in the use of knowledge in society, which is Hayek's 1945 paper, is essentially a computational critique of planning, right? And so Asimoglu argues that Hayek argued that the market system efficiently aggregates information via the price system and that Hayek posits that central planning wouldn't work because it would be impossible to collect and compute the right allocation of resources. And after sort of paraphrasing Hayek in this way, Asimoglu moves on to sort of pose this general question that in this current world of AI and large language models and this sort of incredible computational power that humans have acquired, what if central planning can be improved tremendously, right? And would Hayek then be happy with central planning? So this is yeah. the, the premise that he started with. I actually sent him the paper on Twitter, not just me, like yeah. 30 of us, I think, inundated Asimoglu with your recent paper with Rosalino Candela on the feasibility of techno-socialism. This was published recently in Jebu. And you basically argue that there is a fundamental misunderstanding of the economic problem of society as being one of a computational nature rather than a knowledge problem. And this needs to be addressed. And the market process actually does address this problem, right? And that's Hayek's main insight. So before I get into the big debate, I wanted to frame it, but I want you to explain to most of our listeners who may not know the main insights of Hayek's 1937 paper, this is Economics and Knowledge, and Hayek's 1945 paper, The Use of Knowledge in Society, and then we can go on sure. to the rest of it. That's great. Great context, too. I think the key insight in Hayek's 1937 paper, Economics and Knowledge, is that the pure logic of choice is a necessary but not sufficient condition to explain the market order. In order to explain the market order, we have to also add in the various different institutional environments within which individuals interact with one another and which they interact with nature and to see how it is that they learn in these alternative environments, how best to coordinate their economic activity with others. I think it's a great thing to start with the 37 paper because that's where Hayek really starts to articulate his particular understanding of the what it is that prices do in an economy. And I, in, in my own book on Hayek, I, you know, I, I try to tell the evolution of Hayekian ideas by an arc of his career. And I start by with his own beginning, which was on the imputation problem, but carry from that imputation problem, basically, how is it that I value a hog, you know, how the value of a hog is derived from the value of the bacon that's, you know, consumers use. And that, that spreads back through the structure of production such that 
farmers want to maintain the hog and all those things like that. And so that's how you get the coordination of economic activities through time. And what is the role of, of prices in that coordination problem? Because prices are these guides to future action. And what is the role of profit and loss accounting in being able to lure you know, us into ventures and discipline us from the sad adventures, you know, if we if we make mistakes or whatever, and and that selection process of what's going on. So Hayek's early part of his career, which includes not only his business cycle theory, which is important to stress, his business cycle theory is a relative price story of the business cycle. So it's a micro foundational story of the business cycle. It's a price theoretic rendering of the business cycle. And then his critique of socialism, which he's building on Mises, is again a price theoretic explanation. And I think if you look at like his essay, A Trend of Economic Thinking in 1931, you could infer from that that his argument is as follows. If you knew economics, you would know socialism doesn't work because all good trained economists understand the role of property prices and profit and loss. Yeah. And that's 1931. Yeah. And at the same time, he's very successful in communicating originally his business cycle to the young, you know, graduate students and, and great excitement to the community at the time in the 1930s. And, and, you know, his move from Vienna to LSE. And by the mid 1930s, there starts to be rumbling that people are saying, no, I can use the very same neoclassical tools yeah. to prove that I could plan the economy. And I think Hayek starts thinking to himself after the collectivist economic planning book, which is 1935, like, what's going on here, right? These are brilliant people like Abba Lerner, his student, his student. Uh, you know, and, and he's like, what's going on? Like, why is this happening? And so he comes up in the second arc of his career, which is a twofold move, I, I argue. One is, is that he thinks there's some deep philosophical mistake that economists have made, which misconstrue the nature of their science. But then there's also, because they misconstrued their science, there's a loss of the institutional foundations. So if you go all the way back to Hume, Hume's argument was is that society, to get off the ground, needed to have stability of possession, transference by consent, and the keeping of promises. So you needed to have property, contract, and consent, yeah. which is an institutional foundation. There's a brilliant book by Lionel Robbins that was published in 1952, but originally written in 1939, before the war and before, but they didn't have, they had paper shortages and everything like that, yeah. so it couldn't come out. And it's on the theory of economic policy among the classical economists. And what Robbins argues in that is that the economists of the classical school, Smith, Hume, all the way up to Mill, they never argued about economics in a vacuum. Yeah. Economics was always embedded within a set of institutions. And what he postulates is that economic science grew up alongside of the evolution of liberal institutions of property contract and the rule of law. And they're embedded in one another. And, and, and many of us, like you yourself, who's an expert in property rights economics and everything like that, you'll, you'll know that like Alchin begins by saying, let's begin the analysis in, in exchange and production or university economics. Yeah. We're going to begin in a world where we have clearly defined and enforced property rights. And that's the basis of exchange. So to a large extent, when you treat something as given, it's easy to then treat it as forgotten. Yeah. And so Hayek's like, how could you forget property contract and consent? We need to bring that back into economics. And so in the 1940s, what he does starting in the 1930s and into the 1940s, he does a dual move, which is one in the philosophy of science. And then the other one is into the restatement of the liberal principles of political economy and justice. And that defines his career. So in my reading, Hayek never left economics. 
My view is he's the very first new institutional economist, which is he's saying, hey, wait a minute, guys, time out. We can't do economics as if it's in a vacuum. To, to try to do economics with omniscient agents and benevolent agents is the same as trying to do economics without scarcity, right? So, you know, we say, if you said to me, what's the economics of heaven? I would say there is no economics of heaven because there's no scarcity. Therefore, there's no trade-offs. But when we postulate economic actors that are omniscient and benevolent, we're doing the same thing. And so Hayek is saying, no, we can't you know, do that. So now back to the, your question. So 1937 is his first really first foray into this. Now, his teacher, mentor, teacher in quotes, but mentor Mises, who is largely responsible for his career, what Mises did was he kind of divided the methodology into theory and to an empirics theory and empirics. And as a result, there's kind of a tough understanding, I would argue, about what it is that the market is. Because is the market the same as the derivation of the pure logic of choice? Or is the market something different? And so Hayek reaches back intellectually, I would argue, to the original masters of Austrian economics, which are both von Bavrik and, more importantly, Menger. And you have to remember, in both von Bavrik and in Menger, they make a three-part distinction. Pure theory, which is the ratio nation of the individual chooser. Then what they do is they develop the situational logic of how markets and how different rules that govern the market will dictate the different ways in which the outcomes come about. And then empirical analysis, historical analysis. So there's this, this really interesting area, which they call either, Menger calls it empirical realistic theory, or Bambavik just calls it applied theory of price which is going to be this institutionally contingent theory. And depending on the various institutional arrangements, we're going to have different manifestations of the logic of choice. So the logic of choice, the pure ratio nation, diminishing returns and that kind of, you know, diminishing margin utility and whatnot, that's still there, right? So I can get a demand curve to slope downward, right? But I can't necessarily get the interaction of the market unless I fill it with this institutional context of property, contract, and consent. Yeah. Most of the time, I just assume those things. So therefore, that's where the laws of supply and demand work, and there's no intervention, and I get you know, a notion of a, a sort of an unhampered market economy. But Hayek was saying, look, look, we need to look at how those institutions of impact the way in which actors in the economy learn. Yeah. And that's the key thing. So what he's arguing is that the pure logic of choice is a necessary but not sufficient. This, this causes some Austrian types to have agita because they think he's deviating from Mises. The 37 paper, pure logic of choice, the situational logic of various different institutional contexts, you combine the pure logic of choice with the situational analysis of institutions, and that forms your framework from which you then do empirical analysis. And that's Hayek's big 37 piece. And what his argument is, is that our justification of how markets operate is in applied theory, not in the pure theory. And that means that we have to have institutions. Now, what's the big thing for Hayek? The big issue for Hayek is that what makes institutional variation important is not the incentives that it structures. That's incentive institutionalism. Again, Hayek does not deny that, but that's not his point. His point is that different institutions have different learning characteristics to them. So one way to think about it is a classroom. And certain classrooms are more conducive to learning and other classrooms are less conducive to learning. And what Hayek was trying to say in essence is that an unhampered market economy, one of built on property, contract, and consent, 
is actually a really, really effective learning mechanism for economic actors. They are going to be hit with stark signals. And so it's not only that they respond quickly, but they respond correctly to the, to the adaptation. I have a, a postcard that Hayek signed to somebody, to Pascal Salon, actually, is who he sent it to. And it, it says the following thing. It says that the market is that what makes the market process important is not that it adapts to change, but that adapts to the constant need to readapt to change yeah. because we're in this world of ceaseless change, right? So, okay, now we're talking about economic activity through time, not any static state of affairs. So we're not trying to look at the characteristic of a price that would generate an equilibrium. That's the idea of prices as a sufficient statistic. We are looking at prices as guides to our future activity. Now it's true that prices economize, right? That he, you know, so he does make that point. But what they economize on is the amount of knowledge that we do to plan for the future, not the su sufficient statistic. To tell me what an equilibrium condition is. So if if I stand at standard price theory, price equals marginal cost. It tells me that the full opportunity costs are taken into account. I'm going to produce at the minimum point on the average cost curve, right? I got all these kind of conditions going in. To Hayek, those optimality conditions are byproducts yeah. of the market, not assumptions into the market. And so in that 37 piece, one of the things that he leverages is a argument by Morgan Stern on the paradox of perfect foresight. Because he, he his argument is that you can't have a market process theory in which the agents have perfect knowledge because if they had perfect knowledge, they would in fact be trapped in a in a impasse. And he uses the Morgenstern uses the Holmes Moriarty example, right? Yeah. Holmes knows Moriarty's going to be on a train to Dover, but yeah. you know Moriarty knows that Holmes knows, and then you're stuck in this impasse, right? And what Hayek's point is not so much that the how do I solve the paradox of perfect foresight? It's that the paradox of perfect foresight is going to leave me unable to act. And so in the world of action, we are never having perfect knowledge. The perfect knowledge outcome is the byproduct when all of the process has, in fact, ceased because it's completed its job. So just to relate again back to broader people outside of Hayek, and I recommend to all of your listeners here to go online and look at the interview in the Hayek tapes with Armin Alchin. Yes. It's brilliant. Yeah. And I'm going to invoke Armin Alchin. When Armin Alchin published the selection of his papers with Liberty Fund, the title of that collection was called Economic Forces at Work. Yeah. And what I love about that is it's not economic forces after they've worked, which is what we learn in textbooks. Yeah. When we learn what the equilibrium conditions are, those are the outcome after all the mechanisms have worked. That's in fact what equilibrium means. We've in fact worked through the process and we settled in, right? To use another example, Makla used to make a joke, which he says, why do we draw a supply and demand curve if all we cared about was the P and Q vector that clears the market? It's we so should the just- the kid at the back of yeah, the class yeah, can, can, can see. If, yeah. They can't see it if it's just a point. It's, on a, the it's just a vector. Yeah, just a point. They can't see it. So the kid in the back has to see it. But what we really want to explain is all the exchange behavior that goes on prior to that which, of course, as you know, as a student of Buchanan as well, that's Buchanan's big issue is that economics is about exchange and the institutions within which exchange takes place. So all of the new institutional economics that comes about 1950 to 1980, property rights economics, law and economics, public choice economics, entrepreneurial economics, all of that stuff derives in many ways from that 37 paper. 
because the 37 paper laid the space open for institutional analysis. But institutional analysis that doesn't deny the marginalist principles. Yeah. Prior to the 37 paper to say I was an institutionalist would to be say that yeah. there is no logic of choice because as the institutions change, the people change and therefore the laws of economics change. Use one last analogy in the hope of clarifying this position. And it comes from Mill actually, but it's, it's really discussed quite well in a, several papers by Dan Hausman, the economic methodologist, the philosopher. And he uses the example of a harbor and the law of, and the law of tides, yeah. right? So the law of tides is a physical law built on the idea of gravitational pull as the earth rotates around and what it does to the ocean levels and everything like that. And those are exact laws. Like we know what those laws tell us. But when we build a harbor, what we do is we actually intervene into the nature and we structure a various different things with the way we build the harbor. And the way we build that harbor is going to affect the way in which the law of the tides manifests itself. And that's like what's going on in the market yeah. because the institutional rules under which the market operates is not going to violate the idea that individuals striving to do the best that they can given their circumstances. What it does is it changes what it means for them to strive. Yeah. And, and what Hayek is saying is that not only are, is it their incentive to strive, but it also is how do they know what the right thing to do is to strive. Yeah. And that is dependent on these signals. So Hayek's, you, that paper, 37 paper, gives rise to contextual economics. The idea that economics always takes place in applied sense in a context. Now we get to the 45 paper and his stresses is that the data of the market, and this is going to get to your Asimoglu point, right? The data of the market is the data of the context. And that's why he says, the way he describes context, he says, is that it's the you know knowledge of time and place of the actor. And not anyone can have it. So the problem in the market isn't treating given data and then processing it computationally, the problem is that you have to have the context, otherwise that data doesn't exist. In the 1945 paper, The Use of Knowledge in Society, Hayek is trying to explain to his audience, as he says, he wants to use the term marvel to shock them out of their complacency. And I think it's important to remember that this was in the American Economic Review, not in Time Magazine. So he's not talking to the average person. He's arguing that professional economists had become complacent about the functioning of the price system. And he wants to explain the functional significance of property prices and profit and loss for the coordination of economic activity through time. And he focuses on the power of relative prices to guide our decisions and the idea that we are, the individual is the man on the spot that has to actually act on those prices, interpret those prices, and then behave in accordance to those prices. And it's that idea of the price system as a whole and the telecommunication aspect of that that is crucial to his insights. In the 1945 paper, the reason why he calls it the use of knowledge in society, as opposed to the use of information in society, is that it's not just little bits and pieces of knowledge. It's knowledge that is not, in fact, given to us. It is generated through the very process of exchange and production activity that gives rise to the knowledge that we utilize. And it's only knowledge within that context. Outside of that context, it doesn't exist. It has to actually be context dependent. And that's a crucial aspect of his story. The socialist calculation debate 
was initiated in 1920 by Ludwig von Mises, and it was directed at people who believe that the experience of World War I planning could then be used in peacetime to be able to then organize the economy in disruptive times and to improve a better world. And they wanted to rationalize the economy. They called it the rationalization of production. And their goal was to rationalize production so that they would deliver mankind from the kingdom of necessity, world of scarcity, to the kingdom of freedom into a burst of productivity in which they would be able to actually achieve all the wonders of the market without any of the disruptions, the anarchy of production, so to speak. And what Ludwig von Mises raised the challenge was, is that in their effort to achieve that, their goal was to abolish private property in the means of production. And Mises argued once they abolished the means of production, they would in fact eliminate the very means by which they could rationalize production. So that's why it's called the socialist calculation debate, because they were worried about rational economic calculation. And what rational economic calculation is, is the ability to sort from the array of technologically feasible projects, those which are economically viable. So an example is, if I'm choosing a railroad track, should I build that railroad track out of platinum or out of you know steel? And you might say right off the bat, oh, platinum's too expensive. And I'll ask you why. And you'll say, oh, because the market price of platinum is too high. That's the point. Without private property, we wouldn't know that market price of platinum. So we would normally say, well, why don't we pick platinum? Because it's a technologically superior metal to, to, you know, to steel in, in producing the railroad. But the problem is, is that that would be end up by producing less with more. We would be wasting resources because platinum could be used in alternative uses in much more effective ways. And without that guiding role of the price system, you're not going to be able to know that outcome. And so as a result, you're going to end up by having systemic waste. And therefore, the, the least thing that you'll do is have a rationalized production process. And instead, you'll be trapped and ensnared in an irrational process that, in fact, makes us poorer rather than delivers us from our, our sad state. Hayek and Mises did mention the incentive problem. Both of them go out of their way to say socialist managers will not face the same incentives. That's the oldest argument in intellectual history. It goes all the way back to Plato, to Aristotle's critique of Plato. Okay. They also do argue that there is a computational problem, which is Pareto identified, which is that in a world of, you know, simultaneous of 700 goods and 100 people or whatever, you would still have to solve a system of simultaneous equations, blah, 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 blah. And there is, a, and Baroni makes this argument as well. It's fascinating in both Baroni and in Pareto, they argue that you cannot answer that question as a, comp as a computer, it's not computable, but the market does it every day. People forget this, right? Because yeah. they, you know, they think that they somehow proved in advance that Mises was wrong, but they don't, they just say, and Smith actually says it in the famous passage about the common woolen coat. He says the number of exchanges would be beyond our ability to compute, you know, to be able for us to get the common woolen coat. It's just I, the way I, I think of what people are doing there is just trying to explain the amazing complexity that's involved in producing the simplest products. You know, here I'm standing at an iPhone, right? Just think about all the component parts all throughout the world, all the knowledge that's embedded in that and how you gather and put that all together. But that problem is not the significant yeah. problem. The significant problem is the generation of the knowledge that's in the context that tells people that I should do this kind of chip rather than that kind of chip. 
And I only get that if I'm in that context. If I'm not in that context, that never exists. So it's not that the knowledge is difficult to obtain. It doesn't exist. It's not even there. It's like, and so that's what Hayek is trying to get at in the use of knowledge in society. But along the way, while he's doing it, he uses these various other you know, things, prices economizing the amount of information we use, prices are, you know, you know, these, you know, summary devices, you know, they are a signal, an incentive wrapped in a signal, you know, all those kind of arguments are in there as well. And so it depends on how people read it. Yeah. And the reason why someone as brilliant as Asamoglu will focus on that issue is because it's that issue that the mechanism design people picked up on. Yeah. So again, there's an interlocutor. So they took Hurwitz and all of them took Hayek's challenge seriously. And they said, okay, so I have to prove that I can actually generate a process which will be informationally efficient. All right. And that's all this computable, computable stuff. And then you get to Langa, who in 67 says, what's the problem? I now have a supercomputer. Yeah. But that, but keep in mind that Langa is saying that we already have you know, Kantorovich developing linear yeah. programming. We have, you know, various people who have tried to do this, even Leontief's input output yeah. tables. So a lot of people in the planning field have already been trying to answer Hayek's challenge. But and before they, we get to yeah. the computational question, to me, it seems like there are two, three different aspects to this. So the first part of the of Hayek's insight in 37 and 45, which are lost is the institutional context that you've pointed out. The second part, which I think has been lost is subjectivism. Yeah. People will have a subjective interpretation of the facts before them, and they will have subjective expectations that they form about the future, even if we impose this some you know bizarre sort of uniform incentive structure. These days, it's a lot in vogue to say that, oh, everyone is individual, everyone is diverse. Yeah, yeah. We need to treat each person exactly like the special snowflake that they are. And it's sort of odd that Hayek did that you know, way back 100 years ago. And he's like, yes, each person is special yeah. because they have very specific knowledge, but that knowledge comes from their subjective view of the world, right? And this, of course, is the Mengerian tradition. So that's that's one part to me that seems to be lost. But the other part is this sort of conflation between the coordinating aspects of the price system and the computational aspect of the price system. So what you were telling me is that the price system, given certain institutions, you know, private property, consent, exchange, contracts, it can create a system where all these different, you know, bits of subjective dispersed knowledge can actually coordinate, right? And the price that pops up has managed to calculate all of that information the way we would in an economic model and spit out an objective number, mm -hmm. right? And in equilibrium, the, that objective number that we can stick on things and all those subjective expectations about marginal cost. So all of that lines up sort of perfectly, right? But that's computational. And Hayek's argument is the price system is very low cost and efficient at computing in a way that, you know, we have no other human or technological institution that can compute. But the other half of it is we actually don't have any mechanism to coordinate either. Right. And the computing and the coordinating elements are fundamentally different. And the coordinating element comes from what you're talking about, which is the learning, which is the this needs to happen in an institutional environment and so on. So can we separate computation from the epistemic aspects? 
Is that the source of the confusion in Asimoglu or is something else going on here? Well, it's a brilliant set of questions that you asked there. And, and I realized that I gave a very long-winded discussion of 3745. And, and I do want to address some of your things, but I want to read a quote from Hayek. Hayek talking about the reception of, other of Mises' ideas by other economists. He says, Mises' arguments were not easily apprehended. Sometimes personal contact and discussion were required to understand them fully. Though written in a deceptively simple prose, they tacitly presuppose an understanding of economic processes, an understanding not shared by all his readers. We see this most clearly in his crucial argument on the impossibility of economic calculation under socialism. This is the key point. When one reads Hayek, uh, Mises' opponents, one gains the impression that they do not really see why such calculation was necessary. They treat the problem of economic calculation as if it was merely a technique to make the managers of the socialist plant accountable for the resources entrusted to them and wholly unconnected with the problem of what they should produce and how. Any set of magic figures appear to them sufficient to control the honesty of those self-indispensable survivors of the capitalist system. They seem never to comprehend that it is not a question of playing with some set of figures, but one of establishing the only indicators that managers could have for deciding the role of their activities in the whole structure of mutually adjusted activities. So it's, again, this generative and discovery aspect of it. And so this is the key issue is that to Hayek and to Mises, what calculation does is it allows us to sort from the array of technologically feasible production projects, those that are economically viable. And you have to do that sorting, otherwise you're gonna have systemic error and you'll end up not producing more with less, but less with more. And that's the very definition of irrational. And again, you have to remember, they did not say rational. They weren't the ones who said the goal was rationality. The socialist goal was rationalization of production, because the whole idea was that by rationalizing production, they would lead to a burst of productivity, which would deliver mankind from the kingdom of necessity to the kingdom of freedom. And so unless they can get rationalization of production off the ground, the socialist project crashes to the ground. So the search in all of the stuff from, you know, from Marx to Norath to all the way up to, you know, Alanga and Lerner, but then also, you know, Kantorovich and all the rest of them, Leontep, it is to get rationalized production. And if I can show you that you don't have the generative process to be able to do that, then your your project is going to crash and burn. So that's why it's called the decisive objection, yeah. right? You know, that, that they have to forego the intellectual division of labor. But let me go back to your other point, which I think is really important because this relates to Hayek's issue about the tacit yeah. understanding of the process. So what is the market made up of? The market, so Keynes had an idea of this. He called it the Keynesian beauty contest, right? And so he kind of understood this idea that the market isn't so much like what I think is the most beautiful. I'm trying to guess what I think other people think are the most beautiful and whatnot. And so the market is made up of judgments of others' judgments. That's yeah. how what the phrase Hayek uses there fit into yeah. the larger structure of, of the idea here. And so I'm trying to figure that out. In order to do that, I have to engage in some judgment, but I also have to have a tool of appraisement. So I realize whether or not I'm engaged in that activity the right way. And this all, of course, turns on the subjective costs that I you know, face in my decision making. And so one of the key things, going back to your pluralism idea, and there's a great ex exchange of letters between Jim Buchanan and Karen Vaughan that's in the Buchanan archives. Why didn't the debate just get stopped once Arrow 
wrote his famous paper, right? Because if I can't have a stable social welfare function, the planner doesn't tangently kiss the point of the social welfare function on the outer frontier of the production possibility frontier. And so Buchanan's whole point in that 1949 paper, there's no fisc, right? So even in 49, he's arguing that, let alone in 54, when he really goes after Arrow, there is no stable social welfare function. If there's no stable social welfare function, what collective action is all about is exchange. Yeah. And as he says, we must always return to the to the swamp, right? He's talking about mosquito abatement issue yeah. as an applied problem of collective action. But what he means by that is we have to be in this issue of the exchange process that makes up, you know, collective action. And so if there's no stable social welfare function, there's no single scalar of values, yeah. there is no residual claimant over the entire economy. And part of the confusion, I think, in the debate, and, and maybe we'll talk about this because you were the one who turned me on to the quote from Jack Ma, you know, that I used to start the beginning of the feasibility paper. So you're the one who turned me on to that. And, you know, he makes the argument that, look, in my business, you know, we use all this, you know, fancy computer, you know, knowledge and algorithms to help me make my decisions. And I have a big business and we're doing all of that. And so why can't the world do that? And we can get rid of this messy process of the market and we could just have this. And I think that the issue is, is that there's a residual claimant in his business. There's a residual claimant for Amazon. There's a residual claimant for Walmart. There's not for the U.S. economy or let alone the global economy. And instead, we have this diversity of ends that are being pursued. And the only thing we can agree upon is the means by which we interact with one another. And that allows for this greater scope of this. And that gets us back to the adaptation and, and agility of market mechanisms or whatever mechanism. So I would say the following thing. If we agree that you have to sort from the desirable to the feasible to the viable, so whatever social system we're in, we have to go from desirable, oh, this is what I dream to be the dream, to that is actually a feasible dream, to that's actually a viable dream. What we know is that under markets where you have property prices and profit loss, we have built-in mechanisms that are going to prod us, are going to lure us, are going to you know guide us, and are going to discipline us. So we have constant feedback and constant movements that are going through. That functional significance of property prices and profit loss has to be mimicked by something else. Yes. If we get rid of private property, we're going to have to have some other mechanism that does the same thing of prodding us of guiding us, of luring us, and disciplining us. So now the question is, what is that? Is that voting? So now we're in comparative institutional analysis. Is it voting? Is it beauty? Is it, you know, is it some, you know, status, cost, whatever. Yeah. And in history of mankind, we've had all kinds of different ways to do this, right? I mean, and and some of which are very ugly, you know, actually when we see them done, but we've, we've done it. And what they haven't been able to do is produce advanced material production on the scale. So they don't rationalize production. We end up by producing less with more and we waste resources and things like that, as opposed to the efficiency that's generated by the market mechanism. And I think that we should learn from that lesson and have a very important conversation about that. You think they went horribly wrong because they called it the impossibility of socialist calculation as opposed to something like the impossibility of being able to substitute the market process? Like Because now the entire focus is on calculation, which makes it seem like there is a calculator, right? They they think, I mean, we've sort of like, in, in some sense, personified 
the market process or what we get at the end of it as yeah. if there is a person who's sitting with a dinky little calculator yeah. making all those calculations and yeah. the main problem that Langa and Lerner had was that Leontief's mainframe computer wasn't large enough. Right. So do you think this is just like people didn't read the entire thing because it was all old school history of thought? What stuck was information economics and impossibility of calculation yeah. and from there we have completely derailed because we have lost the epistemic part yeah. and divorced it from the so compu I, computation yeah, part. Yeah, so I think that there's a couple of things that are going on. Again, your, your insight is is very valuable, I think. One, Mises's article is not translated into English until 1935. Yeah. So, you know, Robbins and Hayek are actually, yeah. you know, more communicating the debate once it's out of its German context. So in the German context, though, from Norath through Karl Polanyi and other kind of people, and even if you go back before Mises to Weber, when Weber talks about socialism in one of his famous essays from, from 1919 or whatever, or Mises in his book on war socialism, which is also the 1919 nation state and economy, where he talks about this issue, it was other people who said there was a calculation problem that needed to be solved, but it could be solved by mechanisms other than the market. So again, Mises is adopting a challenge. Now, part of that challenge is in the old Marxist was that you could use labor units, yeah. right? To, this addresses your subjectivism point yeah. or whatever. You could use labor units to do it. Or, you know, somebody or Norat was saying, look, we did it in the war economy. Why can't we just do what we did in the war economy, do this? But the problem with that is that in war, you turn the economic problem into a technological problem because you have one end, yeah. right? And so then that's, you know, how do you do that in a world where you have multiplicity events? But I want to read Milton Friedman. Yeah. This is a, a very forgotten essay, but it's brilliant. It's Friedman's Review of Lerner from 1947. Yeah. And the reason why I'm picking it out is you got to put the context. Again, 1947, economics, Samuelsonian economics, which is just about to start to emerge, but the economics that like Langa and Lerner and all of them were doing was an effort to have an institutionally antiseptic theory. They wanted to purge institutions from economics. And so how do I bring them back in? Again, this property contract and consent idea. So he, he starts talking here, he's quoting Lerner, and he says, and he's talking about the incentive problem. And Lerner basically says, the incentive problem is not an economic problem, it's a psychological, sociological problem. Don't bring it up. When we want to talk about economics, we just talk about the efficiency properties of the mechanisms that we're in. He says, this is Friedman, quoting Friedman, but this is only a part and probably the least difficult part, that is the incentive issue, of the problem as examples of competitive entrepreneurs indicate. The manager's intentions must not only be good, he must be able to translate his intentions into practice. The higher administrators who themselves need both incentives and tests of performance, tests of performance must have means of determining the extent to which the manager has been successful in his attempts to follow the rule. So he needs that profit and loss accounting, yeah. right, to tell him whether or not what they've been doing is, is a good way to do it or a bad way to do it. And that's what the calculation thing yeah. is, this sorting mechanism again. And his argument is that's like the crucial thing. That's Friedman, yeah. who, you know, many years later, you would say, would just say, oh, you know, it's about private property and incentives, you know, and then give an example of collective farms versus private plots in China or in, you know, Russia or whatever, and say, look at the yield differences. Of course, all economists understand yeah. that idea. 
But the issue is like, what's going on in the way these, these, this industry is organized and the way you do that. And you need to have that sorting mechanism so that you know that you're not wasting resources because we live in a world of scarcity. You know, we didn't live in a world of scarcity. We might not have to worry about any of this stuff, but we do live in a world of scarcity. So we have to always be worried about how do we produce more with less rather than trying to produce less with more. Now, I have a paper that just came out. It's metering, monitoring, and Menger. And because Menger himself actually makes a similar argument that hasn't really been brought out that much about what's going on in enterprises or whatnot. And he has... I mean, I'm reading stuff into it, but he has the, 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 the monitoring issue. That's the incentive issue. But he also has the metering issue. Yeah. We have to be able to have that. And I think when you read like Alchin and Demsets or any of the modern theory of the firm with both the concept of metering and monitoring in mind, you start to see the, the reason why what Hayek and Mises are doing, because it's about how do I not only monitor, but how do I meter? And that's what that's what Friedman's talking about there. And then once you get to metering, then that gets to judgment, that gets to appraisement, and that gets all the subjectivism stuff. And so this is why the Austrians are a little bit more attuned to those kind of questions because they start already attuned to those kind of questions. So, but you know, speaking of Menger, I think the other debate which is relevant here is going back to the marginalists and the difference between Menger and Walra. And I think some of the present day conflation between, you know, the computational aspect and the epistemic aspect, we can actually trace back to Menger and Wardra because the MIT economists, and I mean, I'm, I'm just using that yeah, as a yeah, shorthand sure. for all these computation arguments, they're accustomed to Wardrasian models. And what we're really saying there is that, you know, there are no false traits taking place. It's a mathematically modeled world of, you know, N number of people with X goods and Y services. And all of this happens through an imaginary auctioneer who will be announcing prices like people are adjusting. And we know that there are some specific conditions, you know, where price will equal marginal cost and output will be at the level that minimizes average cost. And, you know, all the things that you said. And we know that the output after the auctioneer has announced everything and everyone has adjusted to everything, we're going to get the output that maximizes, you know, production efficiency and exchange efficiency and so on. Right. And this is quite different from the Mengerian tradition, which is much more focused on subjectivism and process. And to me, it seems like the problem is not that they don't know the socialist calculation debate. That's almost irrelevant at this point. It's that they are in the world tradition and how that developed and not the Mengerian tradition where the entire focus is on the process, right? The the outcome that you get is almost besides the point because you know it's going to change in the next instant, right? There's going to be a new set of prices that everyone has to adapt to. So there's really no point studying that equilibrium point that has so beautifully come about because you know it's going to change anyway. So there's a lot there. The first thing is, is that it was an important discovery of Pareto and the early neoclassical economists to point out that if a socialist economy was to be rational, it would have to mimic the optimality conditions of a general competitive equilibrium. Yeah. That's just, that's just, you know, it's kind of like, think about it like math is math. So, you know, it doesn't matter. The relationship between marginals and, and uh, you know, averages is the same as whether or not you're talking about the costs at a, at, a, at a firm or you're talking about the test scores of your students or whether or not you're talking about it in India 
or in China or whatever. The relationship doesn't change. And so that was the idea of having a universal theory was all tied into that. And that drove a lot because, again, you know, what's the logic behind that? Well, here's the logic is that economics have been debating for centuries over issues. And people thought, man, we're spinning our wheels. Now, why are we spinning our wheels? Well, we're spinning our wheels because of ambiguity. And the biggest ambiguities result from using the same words to mean different things or different words to mean the same thing. So you know what? We're going to get rid of all that and we're going to get math. Math is math. And so then we're going to get rid of the ambiguities. Then we'll be able to have a science that's worthy of the yeah. same kind of idea. And I kid around, as you know, you know, that what happened with Marshall when he was trying to, you know, formalize economics as a discipline. He said, burn the map. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. But, but, well, but he called it economics. Yeah. And everyone before that was political economy. Political economy, that means you end up with all the other disciplines that end up in why, which is like history, philosophy, sociology, you know, right? And, and, but if you end in an X, you're with the cool crowd, right? You're with physics, you're with mechanics, you're with, <laughs> right? And so who wants to not be, you know, one of my teachers was the great Kenneth Bolding. Yeah. And I asked Bolding, you know, when I was a student, I said, Professor Bolding, you know, why is it that everyone became a logical positivist? And he laughed and he said, oh, my dear Peter, he goes, who would want to be an illogical negativist? And, <laughs> and his point was a very good one about like capturing words and where you belong on things. And I think using economics was kind of important because it put us as a hard science, yeah. which was an aspiration. So we're not soft science like these other ones. We're not squishy over there. We're a hard science. And what makes us a hard science eventually is going to be that we can follow the rules just like in physics and yeah. we can develop these hypotheses generated out of our formal models and then we can test them. And I think one of the things that was a really big methodological issue, this is why Hayek goes off on the methodological idea, was is that for most of the history of economics, what we cared about was having a logically sound theory, which means that if your premises are true and your deductions are correct, then your conclusions are in fact true, yeah. right? And so this is how you would have a truth-preserving idea. But that's really tough stuff. And yeah. that has all that stuff. So what happened with math is you don't have truth-preserving. What you have is internal coherence of a validity. You have validity, not you know this soundness. And so what we did was we traded off the difficult stress for soundness and embraced validity as our goal. But the idea was is that, and this is why it took a while for it to take off, and why it correlates with the rise of mathematics, because we've been trying to do math for a while, but it really takes off once we get statistical tools, because the belief was, is now we could have an array of logically valid models, but we're going to sort among them, right, by having, finding out which ones are empirically meaningful by having these very good statistical tests. The problem, of course, is that even in physics, the Duhem-Quine thesis says that, you know, that even these statistical tests are not going to unambiguously tell us which of the theories are right. And so then we get stuck with a variety of these toy economy models, which seem so divorced from the world that we're trying to study. But that's a long story and it's more complicated than that. But that's connected up to why it is that you could get these kind of models that you're talking about. But I think the really important point that you made about Valras versus Menger is that by definition, the approach of the general equilibrium and partial equilibrium approach, which builds on a system of simultaneous equations, a solving of a system of simultaneous equations, whether or not it's comparative statics or whether or not it's yeah. a general equilibrium idea, it relies on not articulating the process. So first, system of simultaneous equations, you have pre-reconciliation of plans, and then you have a P and Q vector that clears the market, and you know what that result is. 
And as you said, you get simultaneously exchange efficiency, production efficiency, and you know product mix efficiency, right? Those, that you get those things simultaneously achieved. In comparative statics, what you do is you have an equilibrium, you have an exogenous shock, and you have a new equilibrium. Yeah. You don't have any kind of process by which it goes there. Now, when you're telling the story in your class, you might talk about buying low and selling high, or when you talk about, yeah. you know, Marshall's fish market, yeah. you know, you talk about this fish, and as the fish start to get old, the price goes down, you get rid of them faster. That's a that's your appreciative theory that you're telling, but it's not in the actual formula that's yeah. there. The formula is either a system of clearing a vector or a change, and then another vector. So one vector that's at equilibrium, a shock, then another vector like that, all of which preclude process analysis. This has huge implications. One of the things about the Austrians is they begin in, in their understanding of the market is one in which you begin as a monopolist. And what happens is your monopoly power gets eroded by the entrance of other traders. So, but you're, fir you're the first mover in a market. So I'm the first person to come up with you know, bottled water. And then you know, at, for a while there, I get monopoly rents for the bottled water. And then the next person says, huh, you know, they're making, they're making pretty good money. They get lured by the profit opportunity and then they come in yeah. and then they erode that market share. So the market becomes competitive. Yeah. It doesn't ever start as competitive. It becomes more and more competitive. And so the whole thing about the Austrians is, oh, and, and not just the Austrians, but Buchanan and everything is that the order is defined in the process of its own emergence. Yeah. And so as that is happening, there's all kinds of new generation of knowledge. There's new evolution of product quality characteristics, all kinds of various things that make for our life, you know, as, as consumers. And it's constantly shifting and changing, as you said. And so this is where the system of simultaneous equations, which is a very determinate system, it doesn't allow us to talk about these other kinds of things. And there's a very logical reason why they got rid of entrepreneurship. You know, so for years, entrepreneurship was one of the key things, right? Land, labor, capital, and entrepreneurship. Right, all well, classical economists talked about that. You and get then we called it the residual claimant, yeah. like the thing that's left over that we can't exactly put into our... Yeah. And, yeah. And, and we get rid of it. And yeah. so, you know, Schumpeter has to bring it back. Bommel and Kersner have to bring it back. And it's not there, right? And and so, you know, I mean, Bommel even referred to it as, you know, what economics was is like Hamlet without the prince, right? <laughs> and so because it's the entrepreneur that's driving all of the things and, and the innovation machine. But with losing the entrepreneur, we also lose innovation, except as an exogenous shock. And so that's why all of the evolution of post-1950 economics is a rediscovery in a lot of ways of, of a lot what of the earlier... Lost. Yeah, what was lost in economics. And I think that, you know, that relates to, you know, why it is that we get sucked into these different puzzles. I think it's also got to do with the idea of perfect competition, right? So if we look at stuff, say, you know, late 19th century, early 20th century, it's a competitive process. They will say, you know, yep. dynamic market process or something like that. This idea of competition was always there or contestability. Yeah. But perfect competition, if I'm not wrong, is sort of Frank Knight's innovation, right? This is like, I mean, I, I think he uses the phrase, but he uses the phrase to kind of, you know, show pedagogically, you know, show something, right? And and squeaks in all these assumptions that if all these assumptions were true, then you would get what we have and what we call perfect competition, right? And now 
with the whole martial demand and supply curve and yeah. and how analytically easy and tractable and you know it's got such great explanatory value in the classroom you add these two things together and then it becomes some kind of normative idea yeah. that we want that right that's the thing the planners want that's the thing that the you know ftc wants and now the entire question is how do we get to that as if an individual can calculate up yeah. to that point without all the things that are required to either have some kind of competitive process which mimics that or you know some kind of contestability process which will mimic that so we we've, we've erred on both sides which yeah. is if we don't have exactly that it's not proper market competition and if we don't have anything else and we just have that that's enough to get us our simultaneous equations and calculate yeah. everything else that we need right so I mean, I think it's very important to keep in mind a point that you just made, which is that what Longa and Lerner did, I mentioned earlier about the formal similarity issue. What happens is they, they confuse the formal similarity issue with a, with a solution. Yeah. So if we could demonstrate that there's a formal similarity, then why not just make the socialist regime or the collectivist economy, that's what they normally called it, you know, collectivist economy. Why don't we just make it do exactly the same rules that would be in a, a competitive market economy? except but we don't use the competitive market, we use the planning bureaucracy to do it. And you're right about the role of perfect competition and all of that. I mean, but I think it's important to keep in mind that thinkers like Knight, like Mises and Hayek, like Ronald Coase, what they did was they were working with a foil concept of yeah. equilibrium to identify the world that isn't the world that they were doing because the world out the window is too complex. Yeah. So they need to frame the world of change by isolating what a world without change would look like. So in a world without change, in equilibrium, you have no firms, you have actually really no markets, you actually end up by you know having no law or anything like that. The institutions don't matter. And so what happens, for example, Hayek, you know, in the in the debate with Keynes, says, look, you want to explain unemployment, you got to begin in a world of full employment. Before, so identify what a world of full employment looked like. Now tell me what gave rise to unemployment. Now I know a cause for unemployment. I can't start with a world of unemployment and then say, oh, now fix it, which is what the Keynesian sort of idea did. That's the logic behind yeah. why Hayek argues that Keynes is dealing with a world of abundance because yeah. there's no trade-offs in this. It's just a technical solution. So Knight wanted to understand the phenomena of profit. Yeah. It was a, a he 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 comes out of a studying theology. He's very philosophical. Yeah. He's very fascinated by the idea of profit. Can we justify profits? Yeah. And so the way in which he's trying to examine that and risk uncertainty and profit is he wants to start, what would a world look like in which there was no profit yeah. at all? And so his argument is, is that profit is not super you know, rates of return are not due to risk. Yeah. Because, right, risk is just that would be manageable. And, you know, so that's just a, a another kind of return. But what it is, is the bearing for uncertainty. Yeah. Right. And so but we that's don't what, know what we don't know. Right. And that's what he wants. And that's to what get you're to. rewarded. So the joke is always that the Chicago guys read the first couple chapters, but didn't read the other chapters. Right. You know, that's just facetious, you know, or whatever. But I, I think that one of the things that's crucial about and coasts zero yeah. transaction cost world but he never yeah. wanted to study the zero transaction yeah. cost world. He wants to study, in fact, in his book, summarizing his points of view, which is before his Nobel Prize, it's called The Firm, The Market, and The Law, right? Mm -hmm. And he goes through and explains it. I really recommend all your listeners 
to read that book because he also in that identifies why he got the idea from the socialist calculation debate, yeah. which is him again, thinking about this issue of metering and monitoring or what he would call transaction costs later on and, and, and everything like that. So what you have is a fascinating evolution of modern economics, which is you have these early masters of neoclassical economics using a FOIL model. Yeah. But at the same time, you have people using it as a benchmark, what you just said. Yeah. And then on the other hand, you have people using it as an as if, right? And so it's like, oh, it's as if. And so this issue of where the Friedman in 47, the difference between that Friedman and the evolution of Friedman or Stigler is that by the time you get to their more like mature statements, what they're trying to stress is not so much the gen generative process of the market discovering things, though they are not ignorant of that. One of my favorite stories is Stigler in his memoirs of an unregulated economist. People should look this up. There's a story where Koopmans comes to him yeah. in outrage because he says, George, I heard that you argued that we should use the price system in, in the case of evacuating New York City in the case of a bombing. And Stigler writes back to him and says, well, Tallings, you know, you need not worry. No, I did not write that kind of memo, but on second thought, and then he goes and explains why the market system would be more adaptable and adjustable and all these things like that to the moment on the time of the bombing, which is very brilliant. It's just, it's just great. It's, and it's Stigler to a T because he's so, you know, snarky and a lot But of you know, it's happening today. Like when there is a disaster situation, the Uber price surge yeah. just goes through the roof. Right. And you do see the market mechanism in some way allocating scarce resources for people who want to get the hell out of there. Yeah. That's what makes people mad. Yeah, I, I get it. Right? That's, that's, also, a, that's, but that's a normative a, thing. Exactly. Yeah, that's yeah, a normative thing. Yeah. yeah. So you have that. So, but what happened in economics is the, the debate forgot the foil. Yeah. And it just became a debate between the benchmark and the as if. Yeah. And this, this debate has huge implications for us because it affects the whole Econ 101 debate, yeah. which is like, you know, and, and, and then you have on the outside, the FOIL people, which also includes someone like Buchanan, who is sitting there saying in 2009, 2010, hey, there's an old Chicago tradition, yeah. which actually cared about institutions. Yeah. And so what are you talking about? And so he contrasts the old Chicago with the new Chicago. Yeah. And then he has this whole thing about the emperor has no clothes, yeah. and, you know, which people dismissed as an old man being cranky. But the reality is, is those papers are brilliant that yeah. he, you know, is identifying because he's talking about this Knightian tradition of where you have your economic system is embedded. I'll give you an example of this. It's in the economic organization in which Knight actually uses the argument that the theorems of economics are like the skeleton. Yeah. Okay. And the institutions are like the muscles and the ligaments and everything like that. So a skeleton, just a pure skeleton, can't actually make your arm move. Yeah. Right. You need to have all the muscles to be able to do it. On the other hand, if you had just the muscles and no skeleton, your arm would, you know, I, 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 I'm somewhat silly in my teaching. And so there's a scene in one of the early Harry Potters where Harry's learning to play Quidditch yeah. and he falls off of his, you know, stick or whatever, broom. A, a broom and, 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 and breaks his arm. Yeah. And there's this weird wizard and the wizard says, I can fix your yeah. arm. And then he takes all the bones out of Harry's arm. And so to me, that's what happens in economics when we don't have theory, yeah. right? So we don't have theory. We just have data analysis. It's just this this blobby flesh. But on the other hand, if we just had the skeleton, we lose all the interesting details yeah. about what makes the system function. And so this is like the way Kirzner uses the analogy. I know I'm mixing up a bunch no. of analogy, but Kirzner uses the analogy of it's the friction between the soles of my feet 
and the ground that allows me to walk. If there was no friction, I'd slide and fall all over the place. And it's the frictions in the economy, the, the ligaments and the muscles that make economic life come alive come for life, us, yeah. as opposed to just the skeleton. But we need that skeleton. Going back to Hayek yeah. 37, the skeleton is a pure logic of choice. Yeah. The muscles and ligaments are the institutional analysis. The outcome is how do I take the two of them together to then explain the functioning of the body economics. Knight had that all in him, yeah. right? But a lot of people just focus on the bones, right? Yeah. So, and, and they miss this other part. And I think that's because they confuse the foil. They just focus on the as if. Yeah. They they compare the as if to the to that. And so you have so think about our economics profession. You have Bob Lucas, who just passed away, brilliant economist, yeah. right? And then you have Joe Stiglitz. And both of them are what you would call mainstream economists. You know, they taught at the best universities, they won the Nobel Prize, you know, they're super cited and everything like that. And here they are, they're contrasted with one another. Stiglitz is all about the benchmark and it fails. The market constantly fails. He's never met a market that didn't fail. And Lucas never met a market that wasn't perfect yeah. because he doesn't actually have to have it be perfect. It's an as if, it's right? And to go even further, if you go to Becker's foundations, when you read Becker's, you know, his foundational book on the economic approach to human behavior, know what he says. He says, these are assumptions yeah. that you have maximizing behavior, stable preferences, and basically competitive equilibrium. Price has to equal marginal cost. So it's not that he discovers price equals marginal cost. It's in a condition I impose on the world. Yeah. So he makes sense of the senseless by imposing that order on the world. It's brilliant. But Stiglitz does the same thing by imposing, okay, you say that, but I'm going to say that individuals suffer weakness of will, and they're also going to suffer from monopoly structures. Lo and behold, the price system doesn't work. And so it fails on every occasion, right? And so this is the debate we have. You know, market never works, market always works. And I know that people don't like this. Kersner has made a living out doing this, but he always says, look, I'm in the middle ground, right? I'm in between these two things. So I have, you know, the real world is constantly filled with change and, and whatnot, which means that there's surpluses and unexploited opportunities all the time that need to be discovered and exploited which means I've, I'm in market failure at some level. I'm or disequilibrium. Disequilibrium, but yeah. I'm, I'm in the process of becoming. Yeah. On the other hand, you know, the market isn't never have a problem. So the market has a solution as opposed to saying it has no solution. Government has to be a deus machina. Or the market never has a problem. Therefore, we just rely on the market. Instead, there's this middle ground, which is the institutional and, uh, and entrepreneurial innovations. If I could just say one thing about that, yeah which I think is interesting for development economics, for all kinds of different things like that. And the, and the big debate, there's a great paper by Deirdre McCloskey on the 126 market failures. Do you know this paper I'm talking no. about? So McCloskey goes through all these different things and identifies all the market failures that people have identified in textbooks, which I find always amazing because when you hear the neoliberal Econ 101 criticism, they say, oh, market fundamentalism is taught. And I'm like, hmm, I don't know any market fundamentalists are teaching at Harvard or whatever. What they do is they teach, you know, basically supply and demand. And then the next lecture is monopoly, externalities, <laughs> public goods, macroeconomic instability, inequality. And they spend the rest of the semester on government as a corrective to the social ills that they've identified. Yeah. So McCloskey has this whole list of, of these market failures that, that she's identified. And what I think is really weird about that is, okay, so what's the response? So the as if response, which is the majority of 
very skilled market economists do. They follow more of the Chicago approach. To me, I think that's there's something a little bit wrong with that because it's like a Jedi mind trick. There are no externalities, right? There is no monopoly problem. Now, they do it sophisticatedly sometimes. Like, so for example, in the old structure conduct performance paradigm, the Chicago new learning yeah. was like, hey, you know, what I'm going to do is I'm not going to look at automobiles produced just in the United States by just United States auto producers. I'm going to look at the global market. And if I define the market broadly enough, no one's a monopolist, yeah. right? If I define the market narrowly enough, everyone's a monopolist. Yeah. So I'm going to define the market very broadly. And then I have the broad market. And so therefore your monopoly criticisms aren't true or whatever. And I'm not saying that, that and also identifying various costs. So, you know, one of my favorite arguments that Alchin and others made was, oh, show me a normal monopoly you know, diagram. And then you say, why can't the monopolist perfectly price discriminate? And your answer is the monopolist can't perfectly price discriminate because of transaction costs. And then you go, hmm, transaction costs. That's an additional cost to engage in an additional exchange. That Another word for that is called marginal cost. <laughs> so that marginal cost curve that you have that's horizontal, we're drawing it wrong. We have to let it go tick, 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 tick. And then all of a sudden, oh, price equals marginal cost given those contexts. Okay, but there's something about that which is cheeky to us as economists, but it's like a Jedi mind trick to the Stiglitz of the world. So Stiglitz writes in his book, Wither Socialism, Chicago economics was well-funded, but not well-founded because he doesn't want to have the, the Jedi mind trick. Yeah. To me, I think, what a better answer if we rely on Coase and Buchanan and Kersner, because what we're going to have is first the possibility of different changes in the institutions, yeah. which will, in fact, be Pareto improvements. So we can do them in changes of the law, right, which is what, you know, so in the Kosian framework, right, what you do is you have you allow people to negotiate. If they can't negotiate away the conflict, you adjudicate to clarify the rights so they can negotiate. The priority is to get them to negotiate away the conflict. And the legal changes are, in fact, to clarify the situation so they can negotiate away their conflict. In Buchanan's idea, it's you propose rule structural rule changes so that you can realize Pareto improvements. Now, that has to be tested against the collective action decision making. So your hypothesis as an economist is not taken as you know, godlike or whatever. Yeah. It's tested in the collective process of democratic decision making. But nevertheless, you can get Pareto improvements by changes in the rules. Eleanor Ostrom, changes in the rules, but from the ground up. Buchanan, more from the top down. Her from more from the bottom up. Again, institutional. So there's an institutional answer to these very hairy social problems. On the other hand, you have Kirzner and Bommel and Schumpeter and other ones who sit there and say, hmm, today's inefficiency is tomorrow's profit opportunity for the person who can solve that problem. And so they'll jump in to try to arbitrage that way or come up with a new technological innovation to be able to achieve that. And so how robust is that answer to the market? I'm saying it to you yeah. and you're nodding your head because you, you buy this. It, it dumbfounds me that this is not like the standard economics response. So during the pandemic, I read Matt Ridley's book, How Innovation Works. He has a line in there that I love. And of course, Deirdre has been saying this same argument, but Ridley summarizes up, says, innovation is the child of freedom and the parent of prosperity. Yeah. And I like look at that and I'm like, okay, so that obviously seems true. So why is it that not everyone just says, there we go. So what we need is to have a permissionless you know, economy that allows for constant entrepreneurial innovation to be able to achieve these you know, greater outcomes than any of us ever could imagine for them to discover. And to me, I think that's like, why aren't we teaching that in economics? And so part of the difficulty 
with the this is outside of this debate, but the broader difficulty of the critique of economics, the economist hour is up and all these other kinds of things like that, is that I think the critics have misidentified what it is that the sin in economics is. The sin in economics isn't market fundamentalism because there are no market fundamentalists. The sin in economics is that we teach it as if it was social engineering. Yeah. And we forgot that economics and its best is a tool for the curious. It's to excite the minds of the young people, not by giving them a catechism or telling them what to think, but to tell them how to actually frame questions when they look out the window to allow them to have observational genius about making sense out of the senseless that's all around them, making a mystery out of the mundane. You know, this is what Adam Smith's doing with the common woolen coat. Yeah, common woolen coat. What's so mysterious about that? And then Smith says, huh, look at that thing. Where the hell did it come from? And then starts talking, you know, 200 years later, Leonard Reed says, a pencil. So it's the same kind of thing, right? Yeah. It goes through it. We could say today, an iPhone, you know, how do we get that? And so once we do those kind of things, make a, the mystery of the mundane or, you know, allow us to make sense out of the senseless behavior that we see out in the world, then all of a sudden, you know, we can see that economics is this tool for the curious to help them reason through. It's a golden key, you know, and we shouldn't hoard it. You know, and we should be really excited as teachers to share the golden key with people to recognize that we live in a world of scarcity, that scarcity implies trade-offs. Trade-offs mean that we must negotiate those trade-offs. In order to negotiate those trade-offs, we need aids to the human mind. The commercial society gives us those aids in the terms of property prices and profit loss. If we're not in a commercial society, give me another aid to the human mind. And it turns out when we do the comparative institutions, of those different institutions, they don't do as well. And so as a result, we get stuck making trade-offs that are not going to be corrected and, and redirected whenever we make mistakes. We get mistakes are embedded into the system and privileges are embedded into the system. And, and you know, and again, like you mentioned earlier, like one of the ways in which, you know, we did answer these questions in the past was cast. What does cast do? Cast actually locks yeah. right the world in. And so when we think about those kind of ideas, you know, it makes us really think about the dynamic nature of markets and why don't we teach markets that way as exchange, the institutions within which exchange takes place and the entrepreneurial activity that drives economic progress. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars and work of the Hayek Program, visit Hayek.Mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.